Let's get started. I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. Thanks for joining us for a Chevron Forum for Development. The conversation we're going to have today is about applying lessons for global entrepreneurship. There's an enormous youth bulge uh, in many parts of the world, and one of the solutions to the global youth bulge is going to be uh, solved, partially solved, not completely solved, by entrepreneurship uh, and people starting their own businesses. And second, I think there's a lot of underserved communities where the the concept, uh, the con where entrepreneurship also has is part of the conversation about solving problems in underserved communities, not just in the United States, but uh, but around the world. So I think this is a, a really interesting topic. I think there's a number of areas that uh, that are worthy of, of consideration. One is what's the enabling environment to allow for formal businesses to flourish, whether it's uh, property rights or the ability to actually start a business and the rules around that. Uh, second, um, the kind of training that's needed, mentorship, training, networks, uh, it's really critical. And then third, access to finance. There's other, there's other things as well, but I think we're gonna, you're going to hear throughout this conversation um, a number of those themes come up. So um, we've got some really interesting uh, speakers to help us with this. Um, we have Peter Rigi, who's a global director for the Center for Entrepreneurship and Executive Development called SEED. Yep. And um, I'm going to have Peter go first. So Peter, what is SEED and uh, how did it get started and uh, how, do you, how do you intersect with the issue of entrepreneurship? You have entrepreneurship in the title, so I suspect a, a lot. A lot, a lot. Thanks, Dan. Thanks yeah. for the opportunity to be part of this uh, prestigious panel. Um, SEED, the Center for Entrepreneurship and Executive Development, is actually an outgrowth of the Small Enterprise Assistance Funds, which is an impact investor. Uh, so SEED is the seed of CIF? So those Something acronyms like are close, yes. yes. Very yes. close. Yes. Uh, think of what, what CIF does on the, on the investment side with financial capital. I tend to do on the human capital side, working with developing those companies to help them to be able to be in position to receive that capital at some point in time. Um, in terms of seed, it was basically it was an outgrowth of my experience working originally on the investment side. I used to work in Eastern Europe, um, and that part of the world we were investing in small and medium-sized enterprises, or today we'd say SGBs. Um, and you would look at 100 companies, and you would invest in one. And that was the right thing to do with an equity tool that we had. Uh, but in doing so, and I'm someone who has a development background, um, it always was hard to look at family-owned companies that were good companies, big, important to their communities, they employed a decent amount of people that were not targets for our investment. Uh, but they could have benefited from some of the things that we were doing with our investees to help make them better, more scalable companies. So SEED, in short, was basically an idea of how do I take the learnings I got on the investment side and the other investment officers had on that team um, and kind of package them in a way that we could serve a broader community in those developing markets. And that's where SEED came into being. Okay, so you, I always like to give AID credit where credit sure. is due. So when you started, you started in a number of countries. Who funded you and what did sure. you first do? Yep, uh, I was starting in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, USAID at that point uh, was beginning to kind of downsize a little bit in that side part of the world, although it's been a long, slow uh, uh, retreat. And I was looking to, to kind of build out seed, and, and USAID was very forward-thinking. Uh, they said, you know, we don't want to do a regular three-year project or five-year project. We have small amounts of money, and I say small amounts, I'm talking hundreds of thousands, not millions, uh, for particular markets. Uh, do you have an idea of how you could run a business service operation that would have the potential to be locally financially sustainable? And that's where seed was built. So a lot of it has to do with the segment. I think working with startups is fantastic, and I've done it many times where it's been subsidized. 
but I was focused seed on growth stage companies. These were companies that had been in business three, four, five years. They had two to five to 10, sometimes 20 employees. Something was working for them. They, they actually had revenues, but they were stuck. They weren't making the leap. They weren't scaling. So they were people who could pay for some services, maybe not a market rate, but they could pay. And they were attractive to other stakeholders in the markets, like banks, insurance companies, other people who had services for entrepreneurs. So that allowed me to have a financial model that USAID could get behind and say, it's worth a bet to see if they can be around. So the, the, the punchline is some of the initial investments I got from USAID were, now I'll date myself, 2007, 2008, 2010, and those operations are still running in Eastern Europe nine, ten years later. Because the business model was you got some upfront grant money from AID, and yep. they said, trust me, we're going to find... Uh, growth stage companies, and those growth stage companies will pay for the service, and we can we can self-sustain ourselves off of that. Yeah, they basically, uh, I, I lucked out at USAID, they had some people with some private sector experience, and they really looked at the, at the model, and they said, do you have a revenue model that works locally? Can you get fees from clients? Can you get sponsorships and partnerships? And can you work on consulting or other projects locally to kind of supplement the, the income to cover the cost? And that was the bet they made. So what's the kind of advice that they pay for? What do, what do companies sure. come to you and what, 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 what do you, what, how, do you, how do you help them? Sure. That's a good question. Um, as I was telling Dan in the, in the room before we came in, I think uh, tr they do get a lot of training. But if I sold training, it's kind of a race to the bottom. I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, I want to be trained. You know, they come to us and they say, oh, my God, I can't make payroll. Or I'm, not, I'm losing a client. How do I replace that client? Or I don't know how to compete against the company down the road. That's the, the client usually come to us with a need. And sometimes, to be fair, they don't know what they don't know. Um, so the way we did it was if you had the money or time to go get an MBA, you should go do it. You know, great. But most of the companies that we were working with, they can't. They don't have that money. They don't have the time. They can't step away from the company. So we kind of built a program that looked at the life cycle and said, how do we meet them where they're at? How do I provide the services? If you're a growth stage company and you're two years old and I sit here and talk to you about corporate governance, really important, especially if you want financing. But if I sat and talked to you about sales today and how to improve your sales, I'd have your attention. And then I'll immediately, if, if you can do that and enact something where it's practical and, and, and you know, actionable and you get some positive result, now you're willing to listen to me even more maybe to talk about governance or other things. So the trick for us was to, to find the incentive between the time that they could commit and create other networks. What they really needed were networks. They needed other people who were at the same level or a little bit ahead of them who had some success uh, so that they could learn you know, some of the shortcuts that they needed to, to build the business. Okay, so what's the biggest constraint that entrepreneurs face? You've been working with them now for 15 years. Sure. What's the biggest constraint? <laughs> they will tell you it's money. 100% of them will tell you it's money. Um, I would politely disagree. I, I think oftentimes the, the companies I've worked with um, don't yet, as they're growing, haven't quite professionalized, haven't quite set up some of the systems mm -hmm. to be able to receive some of the growth capital that they might need to really scale. So money is definitely an issue, but it depends at what point in time. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done first to kind of self-finance and be improved and then and then go for real capital. How much demand is there for your services? Is there a lot of demand? Are you surprised by the amount of demand you get for the, your services? Yeah, it, I mean, there's always competition in the market and it's, you know, in any market it's growing so it, it changes from year to year. Uh, but in general, we've had a per, found a pretty good uh, sweet spot. Uh, there's been a lot of attention on startup and very early stage companies, which are really necessary to kind of build the pipeline. But that tends to be a subsidized activity by government or some other source. And for us, uh, you know, really what we had to do was go into the market and, and prove that we had a valuable service because they have a choice. They can either be part of our network or, or not. 
So I would say the demand has been, uh, we've been pleasantly surprised. Okay, so I'm going to list some regions of the world. Central America, Africa, underserved parts of the United States. Yep. Are these all places you're thinking about? And talk about, just talk briefly about each one of those, how yep. they come up on your radar screen. Sure. Uh, uh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, I'm already there. I'm working in Tanzania. I do a lot of work in North Africa, but definitely in Tanzania. T tell us how you got started in Tanzania. Yeah, okay. Uh, I have to be entrepreneurial, too. Uh, I, so when I look at opportunities in a market, um, I knew that my parent company, SEIF, was looking to invest in East Africa. So I, was trying, I tried to find a way where I could find a funding source. It, was, it happened to be a government source, U.S. government source, where I could get a project, project going for a couple of years. But then the question was, could we build it enough to kind of spin it out? So... I used a USDA project to get going in Tanzania. So you traded wheat for cash? Uh, in a way. <laughs> um, but I would say that in terms of the other parts of the world, I, I'm looking to kind of piggyback where CIF has some investments. It, mm -hmm. it opened a Caribbean fund actually mm -hmm. just in November. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's looking to open a fund in Central America. So there is an opportunity to, to see where we could be uh, working tandem. Um, and in terms of domestically here in the United States, uh, it's all about where you think you can add value. If the lessons that we've learned abroad, working with the, this growth stage to professionalizing stage demographic can be helpful, and we could work with probably with a partner here in the U.S., we would consider it. But right now, that's not our focus. Our focus is international. Okay, but could you see yourself maybe in the future doing that? I never say never. Never say never. Never say never. I, I think the issue is you just have to find <laughs> out where you can be competitive and really add value. Okay, great. Good, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. So, Shamrock, thanks for being here. You have a, you're you're a, you're at Nathan Associates, but I've known you in your other professional incarnations. You've worked on, on entrepreneurship and women's entrepreneurship for a big part of your career. So, talk about uh, what you're doing at Nathan Associates. Talk about the study you did, and uh, talk a little bit about um, the specific challenges of women's entrepreneurs. And then I'd, I'd hope I'd also given. Um, you've, you've worked in all sorts of different country contexts. Tell us about a couple of country contexts in, in particular. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Use the, push the, you, there's a, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um, so Nathan Associates is a development research consulting firm. We partner with a number of donors, with USAID, with World Bank, with DFID, and others. And the work we do is around policy development, but also direct technical assistance in different countries to support entrepreneurs and, and support workforce development, actually, too. Um, and what, from what we looked at, uh, when you look at female entrepreneurs around the world, there's a big credit gap. There's a $500 billion credit gap. So money is definitely an issue, but uh, networks and mentorship and um, other sort of access to the whole ecosystem set of players that support entrepreneurs is also a big issue. So we look at uh, all of these um, issues are under the microscope of policy as well and look at the legal and structural barriers uh, that actually inhibit women from getting into entrepreneurship. And in a lot of countries, you actually have women who can't own a bank account without their husband's permission or their father's permission. So this is a big issue when you look at developing countries especially. Um, but even in the US, um, if you look at the, the status of female, female entrepreneurship, um, you have about only 2% of VC capital going to female entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship as we know it is not very inclusive. So what we really work on is try to make entrepreneurship uh, just more representative, and uh, there is a strong business case for having more female entrepreneurs as well, uh, notwithstanding that half the world's population are women, but also in general, um, investors have actually seen a higher ROI from investing in female-led startups as, as well as small and growing businesses. 
Um, so there are a number of different studies that have been out there. BCG has done one. Uh, McKinsey has done one. But essentially, you look at um, the representation of female uh, entrepreneurs in a set of um, people that are running a company. Uh, so if you look at the executive team, if you have a female uh, representative, one or more, you actually see the company doing better. And there are reasons for that is because oftentimes they actually understand the market better because the market is made up of diverse consumers. Um, so, so this is not to say that you know, female entrepreneurs are generally better. It's to say that you need this cross-pollination of ideas to happen before companies can do well. Um, but female entrepreneurs are not getting the capital that they need when they start out as an individual female entrepreneur. Um, so we looked at uh, the data from the U.S. as well as a number of the APEC economies. We work with about 21 APEC uh, countries that are looking at entrepreneurship as a priority. Um, and the data is a, is a big piece that we need to work on because it's missing in a lot of countries. You don't have sort of a good data around how many female entrepreneurs there are, how many tech-based female entrepreneurs there are how much money they're getting, um, and the rate of growth, et cetera. So we looked at the U.S. as a proxy and found that if you actually invest in uh, female-led tech uh, enterprises that um, essentially start off uh, in, in kind of a diverse team, you actually have higher job growth if you invest in those enterprises. And the numbers that we have is about almost 2,000 uh, more people that work each year in these enterprises if you invest in um, a diverse team uh, led by men and women. So, so this is uh, interesting because um, you know, Kaufman Foundation has actually come up with a lot of data around the rate of growth of um, enterprises that are uh, diverse, and they've looked at the ROI, but we actually translated that into job growth. So what does that mean for the economy? Uh, so we're talking about how to respond to this growing sort of youth bulge and how to meet the demands for jobs. So this is kind of a big uh, issue that I'd like to underscore, that you need to invest in diverse teams and, and diverse enterprises to actually create jobs. Uh, and if you look at the ROI and the valuation and profits as well um, for enterprises that are diverse, uh, you actually end up with better numbers as well. Um, so there are a few different studies. I'll talk about the Boston Consulting Group study. So they looked at um, diverse uh, enterprises that uh, were led by you know, three or four um, uh, men and women in the executive team. And for every dollar raised, um, the female-led enterprises that have a diverse team generated 78 cents more in revenue compared to 31 cents for male-run startups. So this is really interesting in terms of um, you know, having sort of a, a, a business case for investors as well, right? Because you can say that we can create more jobs, but also how do you actually incentivize investors? Um, and as Peter was saying, this is a very sort of network-driven issue as well, where um, a lot of the investor, investment firms are very uh, male-run. You know, if you look at the number of men and women in investment firms even in the U.S., only 10% um, of investment firms have women on the executive team. So in terms of who's investing, those teams aren't very diverse as well. So in terms of kind of who's getting invited to pitch and um, also in terms of um, the types of decisions that are being made at the, uh, the investor level, you don't really have a lot of female representation there as well. So, so I think it's twofold, you know, looking at the, the investment world and looking at how to make that more diverse, but also looking at um, who's getting the opportunities to pitch because female uh, entrepreneurs are oftentimes not networked or plugged into the, the, the VC world and the investment world. Um, so we take that uh, as an example to um, then uh, translate to um, other countries as well that are looking at uh, this gender gap in entrepreneurship, and uh, we find that th these gaps are even more pronounced in a lot of patriarchal societies, and especially in, in Asian countries too, where uh, you have al almost zero women in sort of the investment space. So, 
uh, in the APEC space, we work a lot with APEC economies, as I just mentioned. So we talk a lot about the need for um, having more representation in this investment world, but also in the banking world. Um, and we've worked to train loan officers, and I know that IFC and others have also done the same thing to uh, sensitize uh, them uh, in terms of getting um, them to understand that this is a business prospect. It's just not for charity, but you actually have a strong business case for, for supporting women. Um, so you need a combination of policy, a policy that breaks down these barriers uh, for women that are not being able to own property or collateral uh, because they need a certain person's permission in the household. And you also need um, uh, the, the right kind of incentives for investors and, and banks and others that are capital providers to actually look at women as a viable business source. Okay, so, so Shamaruk, in addition to more research needed, which as a think tank, I'm always happy to hear that we're, we're, there's a fact that there's like a dearth of data on, mm -hmm. on APEC. Can, can you talk about um, talk a little bit more about this issue of networks? It seems to me that that that's something that that um, that Peter also mentioned. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so you know, networks uh, is is really important. I actually was in my previous job at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, so I, I see that in many countries the chambers of commerce are not very diverse, and they're a good source of information for business regulations, for where to get capital. Um, so I think there could be a lot done to uh, make these chambers a bit more diverse as well. There are a number of countries that have women's chambers of commerce. I know Mark's over there who works with SIPE and they work with uh, um, a number of governments to support uh, women's chambers. And uh, this is really important because you need these associations and chambers to be sort of a one-stop shop for women who often have even limited time because they're burdened by care um, you know, considerations in the household. So oftentimes, even to take the leap to be an entrepreneur is a difficult one for a woman. So uh, given sort of the current status quo where women still are taking the majority of the care burden, um, given that limited time, how can they get the maximum information from you know, uh, one uh, source? Uh, and chambers and associations can play a big role in that. Uh, just given that you know, networks are kind of um, not very inclusive right now. So this is something that well, we need to focus at the policy level as well as the businesses, uh, uh, businesses can do a lot more as well in terms of making networks much more inclusive because I think that there is also a big untapped opportunity in terms of sourcing from women. Um, and oftentimes you'll find that companies are going out of their way to, uh, to find the women to source from because they're not networked with suppliers. Um, so Walmart, for example, has made a commitment to source $20 billion uh, from women-owned businesses. And they found it incredibly difficult to actually identify those women-owned businesses because they weren't networked. Uh, so I think chambers can play a big role in that. That's great. Thank you very much, Shamaru. Um, Wesley, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm re-looking re at your resume. It's really interesting. You currently serve as the CEO of CoBiz Richmond. <clears throat> you started out as a, an FBI special agent. You started a, you co-founded an app. <clears throat> you worked for a Fortune 60 Ventures in emerging technology. <clears throat> in your bio, you, Wesley's motto is that we must do more as stewards for the next generation, which I agree with. Um, so you're you're doing that now. You, you you didn't need you didn't need to take the job of, of starting a. You could have done lots of things with your time and your talent, but you've gone back to an underserved part of California, Richmond, California, to start this uh, shared co-working space and business incubator. So talk a little about your past lives and talk a little bit about your current life and how they intersect with the, con the conversation around entrepreneurship. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much for the introduction and the opportunity to be a part of this panel with these esteemed professionals. Uh, simply, I try to identify myself as a mission-driven professional. Um, whether it's uh, educationally or professionally, 
trying to put myself in a position where I could learn um, the benchmark practices. I can waterfall the people who are trying to achieve more in their life, especially those in underserved communities. So whether it was working at Fortune 60 Ventures or um, trying to start an app to help diverse communities um, better promote and kind of uh, make people aware that events and activities happening in their backyards or even being an FBI agent and kind of uh, contributing to uh, the wellness of this country. At the end of the day, I think we all have an opportunity to give back and make sure that the pipelines that we are um, able to utilize and establish a life for ourselves, that we make sure that we build an infrastructure for those coming behind us. And so that's essentially um, my purpose as an individual. When it comes to uh, CoBiz Richmond, uh, it's, very, it's very important that I highlight to you that it's located in the Opportunity Zone, which means that 20, at least 20% of the people that reside there um, are living in poverty. And so when you think about that, there's obviously an element of challenges when it comes to exposure and access. People having access to the means to have a well life, to um, have mobile, to have um, the ability to scale socially, to kind of make a difference in their life. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Richmond, California, where I live and reside, is about 56 miles from the epicenter of incubation, of innovation, Silicon Valley. Yet the benchmark practices, the funding, the subject matter experts, the experiences and the conversations that readily occur there every single day in Stanford, Palo Alto, Mountain View. Sorry. <laughs> Those experiences, they rarely, if ever, come to Richmond, California. As I mentioned before, we're only about 50 miles away from Silicon Valley. You can only imagine the challenge that people face when, not, when they aren't exposed to these experiences and these services. It can't permeate into the school system in terms of the entrepreneurial mindset. You won't have policies in the government that will support a vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem. You also won't have the support services needed to ensure that these companies are able to scale, able to get the expertise that they need. And as, as a result, you can't optimize the opportunities for entrepreneurship. More importantly, when you think about an area such as Richmond, and we talk about economic development and things of that nature, we can have business resources, but do we also have resources to make sure that people are well? There needs to be a kind of combination of not only promoting entrepreneurship, but making sure there's wellness programs for people so that they can minimize homelessness, that they have a place to stay, that kids can be vibrant. So when we take that in combination, we try to take a place-based approach and a community wealth approach of saying, what can, be, what can we create that can remove, remove a barrier to wealth? to actually sponsoring economic development, to, us, to actually creating jobs and promoting workforce development. And we identified a co-working, a shared co-working space slash business incubator where entrepreneurs, where creatives, where non-profiteurs, where educators, students, where the civic leaders can convene in one place and meet similarly minded people and exchange, connect, network, collaborate, take ideas and turn them into something powerful. Prior to COBIZ, People that live and work in Richmond had to literally leave Richmond to get those services, to go to Oakland, to go to San Francisco, to go down to Silicon Valley. And what we're trying to do is say we have the resources and experiences now present in Richmond where those individuals can convene, where they can connect, and they can do something special. We, liter we literally just launched in November of 2019, and on that particular day, the mayor said this is a, tipping, this is a pivotal point in the transformation of downtown Richmond. 
But it's my job to ensure that transformation, as well as my, sorry, it's my job as well as my constituents to ensure that that, that transformation is equitable, that it's inclusive, and that it authentically celebrates diversity and preserves it. Because if we displace people, then we essentially have repeated the model that has occurred in, in the entire history of this country. Richmond is historically African-American. It's also immigrant-rich. It's a place that has been severely burdened by redlining. And it also has challenges in regard to reputation that are truly um, no longer real. But that perception creates a very real challenge that we need to overcome. So for us, we're trying to, change, we're trying to create a culture shift. We're also trying to bring in a different mindset in regard to applying best practices in terms of bringing experts into a space where people can kind of challenge their thinking and have better outcomes with their business, businesses, with their nonprofits, with their civic agendas. And then hopefully that can permeate into the school system, that can permeate into the um, city hall in regard to their policies, and that the other support businesses and other investors can see this is a very viable area with very talented, resourceful people who are looking to have a better life. Thanks, Wesley, that's really great. Which of the, you talked about a number of challenges, which is the biggest challenge in your mind? What's the thing that, that is the biggest constraint? Ultimate, ultimately, sorry, ultimately for me, the biggest challenge initially was primarily internal in regard to the legacy challenges. Everyone has an idea of what needs to be done, but can we all agree collectively to first take one leap and then measure the success or the challenges as a regard, as a regard of taking that leap and then modify it and keep moving forward. So getting everyone on the same page to kind of understand what are we trying to deliver? Is it gonna be impactful 10 years from now? Are we creating an anchor institution that can literally create jobs in the future that can um, inspire people and that can also give people access to things that previously never existed? And so I had to make sure that internally, let's say for example with my board and the partners, that we all were all one accord, one accord because we're dealing with significant challenges. We can't have, um, as you say, you need cohesive, um, cohesiveness within a team to ensure that we can execute effectively because we are dealing with significant challenges. Talk about instilling an entrepreneurial mindset. You talked about <clears throat> hoping to, to achieve that. How do you imagine the, the theory of that? How do you think that will that'll happen? Because I think you can, you can develop that. Um, first of all, people, a lot of people are doing great things in Richmond in isolation. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, you do need a community. You need to, people are going through significant um, challenges in the business front and also on the home front. So where did you get that chance to kind of uh, speak about the challenges you're facing and get people who already walked that path and kind of who can pour into you? Um, so that's one piece. So now we have a space where people can convene. The next element is, can we consistently bring in expertise to address the different um, priorities of each different, of different businesses, different verticals. So we want to bring in the Y Combinator as an accelerator. We want 500 startups to bring their demo days and pitch competitions into the space. But we also want to bring in the SBA to kind of speak to the veterans that are significantly, um, that reside in Richmond and tell them, your life is not over when you return. Here are some resources to help you um, take your idea and translate it into an enterprise or organization that can have impact. So, when you have a space that people know is truly for them, now you have people thinking, having different conversations, and kind of challenging each other to do better. So you, you started an app. What was the biggest challenge to, to, to making, that, that, making that a success? You know, it's funny. Um, so my, 
my other founders are diverse as well. And uh, I think one of my biggest challenges is demystifying what it is to take an idea to actual production. And many times people are very uh, excited about, hey, I'm about to do something, uh, about to launch something that we think could be special, and you think it would happen instantaneously. But I was always trying to remind them that it's a long-term play. Uh, success doesn't happen overnight. And so just being able to um, enjoy the challenges and kind of see that as part of the journey versus getting frustrated. As an example, uh, no one trying to access funding, there was an element of, wow, we actually have customers, we actually can scale, but yet we're running into some of the biases that people um, speak about in these different articles. But I told them, don't worry about that. Continue making your, let's continue making this sustainable, revenue generating, and the rest will take care of itself. So it's really a mindset that uh, the challenges are part of the equation, and you just gotta keep doing what you're doing. When you set up uh, CoBiz Richmond, have you been surprised by the demand? Is there, I mean, you were saying there's a lot of folks doing great things in isolation. Were you, were you, you probably weren't surprised by that, but have you been pleasantly surprised on the upside? Um, no, I wasn't pleasantly surprised for only for the particular reason that uh, since I live and reside in Richmond, I know the services and experiences that I too need. So I know there's other individuals in this city of about 110,000 people that are generally um, outsourcing their needs, and now we're able to say, hey, we have a space available for you. And it's my job, working with my marketing team, to ensure that we get the word out effectively so that those individuals um, are aware that they have a resource that is truly for them. Um, we want to see cultivation of talent locally, and we also want to bring in new energy so that there's a healthy exchange of uh, differences that can hopefully catalyze um, new opportunities and make people aware of the great um, resources that Richmond has to offer. You mentioned it's immigrant rich. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we did a big exercise here on forced migration or on refugees and uh, asylum seekers. A lot of times when folks come to this country, they're super hungry to start a business. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that, is that, is that ring true for you in Richmond? Yes, about uh, currently 40% of the population is Latino. Um, significant uh, ESL um, opportunities as well in terms of uh, helping people acclimate to um, the community. Sorry, what's e ESL? Uh, English, as, English as a second language. Sorry. And I believe ultimately um, one of the things that we're trying to bridge is making sure that these different communities uh, come together and share resources and experiences and see how they can not just start a business, but how can they optimize their business? How can they optimize their opportunities? So for example, legal structure, if everyone's operating a sole proprietorship, is that actually the best legal structure for those individuals? And can we bring resources to tell them, hey, if you're able to transition into an LLC or into a S Corp or B Corp or something that um, more aligns to what your goals are, those type of conversations by themselves can be very powerful and make them realize that they are part of the fabric and the ecosystem for success for the city and for the region and for the country as a whole. So you're, you're, have you seen the film It's a Wonderful Life? I don't think so. Oh, it's this Christmas <laughs> movie from the 1940s. You're the George Bailey of Richmond. George Bailey's the hero of the film It's a Wonderful Life, and he's sort of the glue, and he's, gonna, he's a catalyst for good. George Bailey. <clears throat> and uh, so or Cobiz Richmond, perhaps, is going to be the George Bailey of, of Richmond. But basically, they, there's a, they, they there's a, the, the movie shows what happens if he was never born, and, and it's sort of, it's, and so yeah, it's interesting. I think what Cobiz Richmond is going to be the George Bailey of, uh, of Richmond. So <laughs> see right. the film. You'll, you'll, you'll appreciate when you, when right. you see it. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, Bill, thanks for doing this. 
Um, Bill is doing public service at, at IFC. He's a, a senior director for disruptive technology and funds. Uh, he comes from a really uh, extensive and very successful career in real private equity and finance. He was at KKR, one of the top uh, private equity firms in the world. Um, so he didn't. He, he does. He's not doing this for the money, Bill. You're not in this for the money. This no. is an enormous opportunity, though, to make change happen at IFC, one of the great development finance institutions in the world. So. Um, IFC is really lucky to have you. So talk a little bit about what, what you're doing at IFC and talk about the, the change you're trying to bring about. Uh, thanks, Dan, and thanks for, for having me today. So I joined the IFC about four months ago, so I'm still quite new um, and figuring out all the acronyms that exist there. Um, but when I was being recruited from a headhunter, one of the things I asked was to get access to a bunch of data. You know, the World Bank and the IFC have been providing SME finance for a long period of time, for 50 years, billions and billions of dollars. And I really wanted to understand, given those programs would go through typically local commercial banks into these countries and emerging markets, what employment growth was it creating? What I found is most of those loans went to someone that owned a restaurant that wanted a new oven. They got a new oven. Did they add any employees? No. So the opportunity when I was getting recruited was to start thinking differently about SME finance. How do we provide capital in a big way in difficult, very poor countries, countries subject for, for, you know, fragile, suffering from conflict and violence, to create growth SMEs? You know, businesses that start with five employees and have 10,000 employees five years later. Is that possible? And so really uh, have a mandate with a team that's located uh, globally to uh, try to change that and to invest billions of dollars building entrepreneurship ecosystems from accelerators through seed, series A, and growth equity financing, mentorship and support, following a gender agenda to uh, fix the inequity uh, between men and women. And so uh, a great example is, you know, Ethiopia. I was just there. We uh, made a decision that um, with the World Bank that Ethiopia needed to modernize their telecommunications sector. They had a monopoly, government-owned telecommunications solution that resulted in no one having access to mobile data. That's a problem if you want to have growth SMEs. So the World Bank worked to finally open up the Ethiopian telecommunications sector. That created an opportunity for us now and my team to say, what's next in building a startup ecosystem? We need digital skills. There is none in Ethiopia. So what we did with fortunate donor country shareholder capital, we put 250 women between the age of 20 and 25 through full stack coding school that we built in Addis. In addition to that, fascinating enough, of the 250 women we put through school, over half didn't want to go work for the local bank as a coding engineer, the telecommunications business. They wanted to become entrepreneurs and become CEOs of their own business. And so we provided seed financing to uh, 40 of those young women. They're now CEOs. That seed financing in Ethiopia, $50,000, allows them to have a team of six people for 18 months, fully compensated. Um, so it doesn't take a lot of capital to start to have a big impact. And now we're focused on building an accelerator there. Another example is Pakistan. We built the first accelerator that exists in Pakistan with a gender focus where 40% of, of, the, of the people that get accepted to the accelerator have to be women. This is in a country that's very patriarchal, 
where women are afraid to leave their homes. And so we're building a model of an accelerator that allows women to be mentored, get access to the benefits and the capital, and create new growth SMEs actually out of their homes. Um, so those are some of the things we're, we're, we're trying to address. So, so Bill, you, you had a, you've had some really interesting past lives. So you, you've also invested in, you've inv you invested in companies that were growth companies here and elsewhere. Talk a little bit about the kind of conversations you would have with, with founders of companies, and whether in the U.S. or elsewhere in your other lives before coming to this life. And what are the kind of challenges they faced, and um, what's, what's a constant throughout? Uh, I think one of the fascinating things in my prior life is just seeing the, the spirit and desire for entrepreneurship uh, globally continues to grow. Um, in my prior career, we focused predominantly on safer emerging markets, China, India, Brazil. Um, uh, and we focused on generating a maximum return. Obviously, we knew we were having a positive impact, and we'd keep track of that because we'd have to bring that up when we did fundraising through the next cycle. But it was really about return. Now, I'm trying to generate the same financial return because that just goes back into retained earnings that allows us to extend and grow the model, um, but really, really, truly focus. And our shareholders require the 185 countries that own us uh, have a demonstrable, proven impact. Um, and that's really hard. It's hard to generate 25% returns in Liberia and make a huge impact on uh, unemployment, global poverty, and gender inequality. It's not easy. So you guys have been uh, wrestling with this issue of trying to provide finance and advice uh, to small and medium-sized enterprises, as you were saying earlier, for a long time. One of the experiences was something called IFC SME Ventures. Could you talk a little bit about that? And how are you thinking about bringing that, the lessons into that? Because just like venture capital, you're going to get some wins, and you're going to make some mistakes and learn from the mistakes. So talk a little bit about that. Because if you're going to be in these tough, th your, your shareholders are saying, solve my Central America migration problem. Solve my Afghanistan problem. Solve my youth bulge problem in Africa. So can figure that, and can you get back to me in about 12 months, please, right? I mean, so unrealistic goals. And oftentimes, your shareholders don't know exactly how you guys work or what you guys do. These are foreign ministries, or these are folks who didn't do that well at math or finance. And so, you know, and so they're asked, but they're, but they're your shareholders. They sit on your boards, and they ask, they ask sometimes unreasonable things to you guys. So, and they're, they're pushing you guys to go to these tough, difficult places. So, so talk a little bit about some of the lessons learned you've had from this with IFC SME Ventures. Yeah, so SME Ventures started uh, about seven or eight years ago uh, as an initiative really to try to find uh, the beginning of sources of growth capital in countries subject to fragility, conflict, and violence, the, the poorest 30 countries on the planet. Um, and so in order to do that, we wanted to really create the KKRs of the world in some of these countries. Um, and what we found is that's not easy. Um, we found some corruption. We found even with proper training and guidance and advisory services from setup to establishment and monitoring of some of these uh, new private equity players we formed uh, that they just didn't get it. Um, they just weren't good investors. And so we've had to you know, kind of take lesson of what's worked and what's not. And uh, now we're pivoting SME Ventures to really become that P 
piece of source of capital in the seed Series A, which is too small for us at IFC to go directly as an investor. Um, but we need that ecosystem. We need to have the accelerator with the advisory services, and then as they graduate an accelerator, to have access to that seed financing and Series A financing. Because if we don't have the capital ecosystem built, we will fail in creating growth entrepreneurship and be able to mobilize other private sector capital to realize you can get a really good return if you invest in the right uh, startups, regardless of geography. And so those are some of the lessons we've learned. So you guys do both advice and money. <clears throat> Oftentimes, there's, been, there's some challenges sometimes with uh, institutions like IFC to link up advice and money. How do you, you, you when you're in your past life in private equity, you would bring consulting firms to help with, with deals. In essence, you have an in-house consulting firm. Talk a little bit about how IFC brings advice and money to the table at the same time and what the challenges are around that. Sure. At the IFC, we have two sources of advisory. Um, we have advisory that's funded from basically the retained earnings of IFC over the last 60 years that we use to uh, take a large portion of that to give it into uh, building advisory services. And then we have advisory that's funded from donor countries that are typically our shareholders. So the Dutch and, and UK and Germany and France and Japan and Israel are examples that give us substantial donor funding for advisory, typically towards projects that are in their country's interest. Um, so there is a political element associated with the donor uh, advisory. Um, but we really built out a team that not only has in-house employees that, that provide that advice and technical expertise. I'll give you an example. Um, we made an investment in a company uh, called Twiga Foods, which is a startup um, in Kenya, revolutionizing how the agri-sector connects with the informal marketplace. So historically, if you, you know, if you grew bananas, your bananas would go through five different stops before they'd end up in where 80% of groceries are sold, which are women-owned uh, little shops and stalls in Kenya. Uh, there'd be a lot of spoilage. Uh, and there was no price transparency to the farmers, nor to the women-owned shopkeepers, and everyone took a cut uh, along the way. So even though Kenya grows a lot of bananas, bananas are a lot cheaper in Dubai than they are in Nairobi. And so the, the company was uh, created by a founder who had worked at Coca-Cola and thought there was a real opportunity to disrupt the sector, but he didn't understand food safety. And so we have in-house advisory and technical expertise that really understand food safety. So as he was building out the model and we were investing uh, into his business, we used our technical expertise to give him the best practices to check pesticides when you pick up the produce from the farmer, make sure that the quality along the, the distribution logistics chain to the informal market is extremely high. And so we were able to not only bring up farmers' incomes, uh, bring up the informal shopkeepers' incomes, reduce spoilage, and therefore climate effects, but we also overall improve food safety in Nairobi and all of Kenya. Those are the kind of things we try to do. That's fabulous. Bill, you, you guys have a research study that you not can't announce now, but maybe you can give us a little sneak peek of that's related to this conversation. Yeah, and this goes a little bit to uh, what Shamar uh, talked about earlier. So we partnered with Village Capital because we've done a lot of accelerators in emerging markets and then pulled up the Emory University data set, which really 
is a self-reported data set of a bunch of accelerators around the world. And we really wanted to focus on gender uh, inequity. And so we've completed that study. And what we've found, which we'll announce uh, at the Dubai Women's Entrepreneurship Finance Forum next month, is that accelerators, even those accelerators that are run by women, where the committees to accept entrance are dominated by women, are actually increasing the gender gap in terms of access to capital. We find that women that go to an accelerator uh, have expectations for a lower amount of money than men do. And then we find that the percent of what their expectations that actually get met by accelerators is lower for women than men. And so we have come up with an idea to solve this bias once and for all, and we'll be announcing that in February. But I won't announce it today. Fabulous. Watch this space. Exactly. Great. Okay. Agnes, thanks for being here. You're affiliated here with CSIS. We're really fortunate to have you as part of the CSIS family. You have you had you started your career at CIF. You worked at IFC. You were uh, then you were a political appointee or kind of a, no. You were schedule you were a schedule B or you were you were a special hire at, at AID focused on bringing private capital into a place like Africa. You then were a Rockefeller fellow, and now you are uh, you're on the CIF board, and your interest has been the both access to capital in global developing in global development but also in underserved parts of the United States so uh, and you're interested in small medium-sized enterprises especially entrepreneurs so thanks for being here I knew you'd have a lot to say about this topic thank you thank you for having me so as Dan mentioned um, I definitely started out my career looking at investment in developing countries and emerging markets uh, from Eastern Europe to Africa I've always focused on how do you bring growth through investing in local businesses, uh, either via funds or, or um, other intermediaries. And two years ago, I decided to switch that focus and start looking at what's happening in the U.S. and why businesses in the U.S. were not getting uh, financing. So one of the, and, and how that, that was contributing to uh, poverty and inequality in the U.S. So. For the last two years, I've been looking at this, and what I really found is that, first, the importance of small businesses is uh, just as big in emerging and developing countries as it is in the U.S. Small businesses are not only the generators and drivers of jobs. They also provide basic services in a lot of underserved communities, whether it be Kenya or the U.S. So they are the small nurse-managed clinics that provide health care. They are the shops where people in the U.S. have access to fresh food. They are the charter schools or private schools in places like Kenya. So they're actually providing the basic services that those communities need. They're not only creating jobs. And I think what's really important is they're also sources of innovation. So I think that's something that can't be uh, ignored, that innovation really comes from small teams and entrepreneurs. And unless we support that, um, a lot of economies become very stagnant. So I think the importance of small businesses and investing in entrepreneurs is really important. Why does capital count? Why is capital important? It's not only to drive the growth, obviously, but it's also to provide networks. I think this is what Wesley was talking about, to really plug entrepreneurs into the networks of their industry, into the networks of other funders that can take them to the next level. So investment is incredibly, incredibly important. It also provides mentorship. 
because a lot of investors sit on boards. They become value-add to a lot of the entrepreneurs that they invested in. So I think it's really important to focus on small business investment and really figure out how to grow that investment, both in the U.S. and in emerging markets and developing countries. I also found that the needs of entrepreneurs in developing countries and emerging markets and in the U.S. are quite similar. So what they really need is they need access to networks. They need appropriate capital. So a lot of entrepreneurs cannot take on the type of capital that Silicon Valley provides. Not everyone is going to be a unicorn business and grow to $1 or $10 billion of revenue over the next couple of years. Some businesses will just grow slowly. Therefore, they really cannot take on aggressive capital that's looking for an exit very quickly. And some of the entrepreneurs do not want to give up equity. They want to run family businesses. So appropriate financial products need to be developed in order to provide the right capital to those um, businesses and entrepreneurs. And that's happening both in the U.S. and in developing countries. And I think what's also really important is that um, – There is a need for capacity building, and this is what Peter was speaking. There is a need for services to those businesses, so accounting services, business planning advice, uh, audit services that is affordable and that can help these businesses grow, once again, across the U.S. and across the developing world. Um, I really think that on the investor side, perceived and actual risks are also similar, So going into new geographies or new sectors that investors might not be familiar with or trying to find local investors that they can co-invest with so that they lower that risk of going into a new region. Um, They're also looking at the lack of scale. So a lot of investors, whether in the U.S. or internationally, are saying, yeah, I would invest in these businesses, but the transaction size is too small making my transaction cost too high for me to really generate the kind of return that will give me a profit because they're still looking for a profit. So you have a lot of very similar um, challenges that both entrepreneurs and investors face, both in the U.S. when looking at small businesses and uh, in emerging and developing countries. So, Agnes, talk about the financial innovation that's necessary because I think we were talking earlier about some of the some of the realities for some of these firms. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I think that there are kind of two two main points of financial innovation. First, not everyone uh, can take on equity, as I mentioned. Also, not everyone can take on debt. In the U.S., even with an SBA guaranteed loan, most people cannot get that loan. That's because the bank that's still taking a risk because SBA goes up to eighty percent. Um, so they're still putting, the bank is still putting 20% of its own capital uh, on the table. They are still looking at credit score. And really, you know, in the U.S., if you did not um, have parents that might have helped you get a credit card when you were in college, or if you don't own a home and don't have a mortgage, your credit score doesn't exist, right? So basically, how can you, or if you're young, right? Older people have better credit scores just because they have a longer history. So it's really not a good indicator of how successful you could be. But yet, all the banks in the U.S. use credit score, even with SBA-guaranteed loans, to give loans. If you don't have collateral, and this comes across both, uh, this is across both the U.S. and emerging markets. If you don't have collateral, you will not get a loan. And most businesses, 
growing businesses in the U.S. are service businesses, which typically don't have collateral. So I think that something needs to be done where the type of financing that's provided is not pure equity. It's not pure debt. It's something in between. Uh, there are lots of intermediaries, both internationally and in the U.S., that are providing uh, royalty-based debt or revenue-based debt, as some people call it, where you're paying off your loan based on a percentage of your revenues. So as your revenue grows, uh, uh, your uh, repayments grow, and that's capped to the investors. A lot of investors feel that that's a lot more, um, a lot more effective. A lot of new uh, investors are also using AI. So they're using technology to try to figure out how um, likely you are to repay their investment. So for example, for people who don't uh, own homes, they're looking at rent payments, right? If you have you paid your rent on time, whether to your landlord or to the city, for example, if you're living in public housing, that is a good indicator that you will repay your loan that they might give you for your business. So a lot of people are collecting data that sometimes is widely available, sometimes not, and trying to turn that into an alternative credit score and provide investment based on that kind of data. Could you spend one minute on SBA? Because I think this has come up a couple of times. Could you talk about why is SBA important in the U.S. context? So SBA is incredibly important because SBA is, its sole focus is to help small businesses in the U.S. And, you know, not to generalize, but they have three kinds of uh, programs. One, the biggest one, is the SBA guarantee, which are loans to millions of businesses all over the country. Um, there's still, once again, there, there are a lot of issues, right? Because I mentioned they go through banks. Uh, so banks will apply the same kind of rigor that they do to a lot of their normal loans. But still, that's a very big, successful program that's credited with a lot of job creation. They have another program which uh, focuses on investing uh, equity or actually providing equity into uh, SBICs, which I think stands for Small Business Investment Companies, um, who are focused on providing equity to small businesses. Uh, this is a very good program, but given the size uh, of the need out there in the US, it's very small. And from all accounts, it's very bureaucratic and difficult to access. And third, they give out grants and they do a lot of capacity building. And some of those are very successful. They have offices all over the US. Some offices have been incredibly good at helping small businesses um, with the kind of business advice that they need. So I think it's an incredibly important um, agency of the US government, but is it enough? Probably not. And other agencies I would mention are also doing a great job. USDA does a lot to help rural businesses. Uh, commerce does quite a lot to try to make connections of small businesses um, to customers. The problem is a lot of these are also not very well coordinated, right? They operate in a silo. It's a little bit like Wesley was saying where there are a lot of people doing some great work, but they're doing it independently, and there is not a lot of collaboration. Uh, you know, I was speaking to someone who was working with ranchers near Santa Fe who was saying that all these ranchers get great assistance from USDA on ranching practices, but what they really need is business advice, how to manage their ranches like businesses, and they had no idea where to go for that. So it's, there's a bit of a disconnect. Okay, so I, I want to give each of you a chance for a, to spend a minute just reacting to what other folks have said, because I know I've seen each of you taking notes. So Peter, why don't I start with you? And I think 
that you heard that kind of you want that resonated with you. And Agnes, just turn up the turn up your microphone. Sure, just a couple a couple points. Uh, I think Agnes's point that there are some similarities between developing markets and what's happening here in the U.S. Maybe think a lot about what Wesley had to say. So I've done a lot of ecosystem building for about 15 years in diverse markets. Um, and what I have found in terms of kind of getting that mindset down, not just with the businesses, but even into the schools, and we've done some work around that, um, was when I was developing seed, I said, you know, it wasn't just to help them grow their businesses, but these entrepreneurs had to become leaders. First and foremost of their company, just how to manage other people. And as they got better at that, how do you take that skill set back to your community? Because oftentimes these were underserved communities in general, in Macedonia and other, and other places. And what I have found over time is those successful businesses, you know, once they've been helped, there is a tendency to pay it forward or, or pay it back. And they will, they will help out. Like I've had companies that are my alumni that started their own angel groups. They started their own schools, even K through 12s. And then the biggest thing I saw was them going back to schools, to other places as entrepreneurs to solve some of these problems. Because the biggest issue was they would say, they'd complain, the government, they don't do this, they don't do this. And we would have one response. There is no they, it's you. What are you going to do if there's not a strong enough workforce, yeah. you know, workforce development? So if the more you can get those entrepreneurs that come back to communities to play an active role, it's hard to herd the cats, I know. But, but if you can, that's where you will really see a, a dividend. Great. Okay. Shamaruk? Thanks. Sure. Um, Use the button. I think uh, what resonated with me, what, with what everyone said, is this um, kind of suite of services that you need to support entrepreneurs. So capital is obviously one, but... There are so many other things that you need. You need a whole ecosystem and um, a number of different kinds of support services. Mm. So I think uh, it's worthwhile looking at the role of larger companies there too because I mentioned a little bit about sourcing from women-owned businesses as well as maybe small businesses, mm -hmm. minority-owned businesses. But there are a number of other things that larger companies can do, and we are starting to see some of that emerge. Um, there's a, uh, an organization called MicroMentor, which actually connects employees from large companies uh, to small and medium-sized businesses that need support. So if someone from an Accenture or an EY or a Capital One wants to support a small business with um, knowledge about financial modeling or banking or advertising, um, I think there's an untapped resource there because every company has employee engagement programs where they actually try to find interesting things for their employees to do and uh, kind of transfer those skills to the community. So I think there could be a role for intermediate organizations there too to connect larger businesses and their employees virtually or in person uh, to incubators and accelerators and even sort of smaller companies that are not part of uh, the incubator space. Um, and then I think also, uh, Agnes, you mentioned about uh, AI and sort of this whole issue of pattern recognition. So I think that uh, we should also be maybe cognizant of uh, you know, the fact that a lot of the capital goes to um, male-led uh, startups in the tech space, and a result of, uh, this is a result of having a lot of uh, male-led VCs. And uh, the pattern issue is a big uh, sort of issue in the VC space where a lot of VCs look for who has done well and looking at kind of success cases. And a lot of the, in a lot of the tech cases, it's men that are running these businesses. But um, that kind of then transfers to how AI operates as well because a lot of this is sort of machine learning that kind of gets transferred into what AI then spits out. So I think it's important to look at business results and to sort of be wary of where AI can also lead us astray in terms of um, you know, who we're looking at for, uh, in terms of kind of business proposition for, for investors. And I think that they could be looking at business results and overall performance over time and IP and other uh, indicators as well in terms of um, supporting female-led um, startups. Okay, great. Thanks, Shamaru. Wesley, any thoughts? Sure. <clears throat> Uh, one thing that I heard resonated 
um, for every panelist was uh, the importance of a network. And when we think about impact investing and community wealth building, it's very important to understand that one, like SBA by itself, can, SBA cannot do it by itself. Co-biz Richmond can't do it by itself. Um, it does require an understanding of the assets in the community and getting those assets to collaborate. And as an example, um, Chevron provided the seed funding for Co-biz Richmond. And the intent was that, can we help provide seed funding for two years with the expectation that these enterprises are self-sustainable after two years so that they themselves become anchor institutions so they contribute to the ecosystem and then they can replicate that with the people that they touch. And so I think if we identify the resources even in underserved communities that add value compared to the parasitic um, institutions that take away value, that's a great way to kind of um, internally within the space build up an ecosystem and then you can bring out these bring these uh, external partners into the area and create something beautiful so that would be my suggestion thank you bill i was just incredibly impressed with my fellow panelists comments and uh, i do think that um, csis is right on spot because i think entrepreneurship is a key part of the solution to uh, solving uh, poverty in Richmond, California, or outside the United States. Um, and I'm glad you guys are thinking on the topic. Yeah, thanks a lot. <clears throat> Agnes? I think that there is um, a lot of promise in, in a lot of successful models, which really need to be scaled up and replicated. And I think it's wonderful that CSIS and Chevron are really bringing that to the table and allowing more information to flow and more people to get interested in the subject. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm interested in doing a lot more on this. I think this is a, this is a if we want to deal with the youth bulge, if you want to deal with migration, if you want to deal with CVE, <clears throat> uh, women's, entre women's economic empowerment, there's, it's, it's not the answer, but it's, it's got to be in the mix of the, the solution set. So, okay, you all been very, very patient. Thank you very much. I'd love to get two or three questions and comments. This gentleman here, let's bunch them together. Um, let's see, my, my friend back there, and uh, this, this gentleman here, and this, of course, I gotta do these three folks first. Okay, so this, this person, Holly Wise, and this gentleman here, we'll do these three. Okay, yep. Hi, um, I'm Eagles uh, Milberg's uh, Center for Accelerating Innovation. Uh, we just recently won an SBA prize for an accelerator for Opportunity Zones. Question for Wesley and I guess Agnes, anyone can weigh in. Um, the whole Opportunity Zone program was aimed at being an alternative to kind of top-down, subsidy-driven economic development, a market-driven tool to drive innovation, entrepreneurship. I just recently went over the data for Baltimore, Washington, Opportunity Zones. 95% of the projects are condos, real estate deals, hospitality, almost nothing dealing with innovations that would transform low-income communities. They're actually projects that would displace low-income people. I'm wondering what you think about how you make this program achieve the results Great. it's intended. You pass it, please, to my, my former boss here, Holly Wise. I learned everything in development I learned from her. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh. Uh, what a great panel, and um, so many interesting uh, thoughts are come up from, from all your comments. Um, so many of you talked about uh, not only the, the foundational elements needed for uh, enterprise and entrepreneurship growth uh, and the kinds of investments needed there, also the networks needed there. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about hmm, how do we break down some of these silos? Who does pay for these 
network creation or some of the kind of um, building blocks of knitting together not only just communities of entrepreneurs but um, communities across the globe. Um, I, I loved, so that's a question, and just uh, I, I loved, um, Tamaruk, your, your comment about, um, uh, about the employee engagement opportunities or the um, business linkages opportunities. IFC has done a lot on, on business linkages work and how do you take big guys and link them to small guys. Um, the, uh, and I just want to sort of underscore how powerful that, how hard to do it is, but also how powerful it is. And, and again, is that an opportunity for doing it in a more than an episodic way? Chevron's done it, Coca-Cola's done it, GE's done it, uh, many, many of others have done it, and what they find is the, the employees love it, to have something kind of robust to bring forward their, their real skills as opposed to their non-skills like hammering or painting or something else um, and uh, help them with strategic planning or uh, or doing um, accounts work or something else that has to do with governance. But sir, how do we do this more and better? Thank you. And this gentleman here. Hi, my name is Mike Ducker. I actually have two hats. I, I run global for a private equity firm doing early stage investing in emerging markets and I also have designed numerous entrepreneurship programs for several European and World Bank and several US government agencies. Um, two, two comment questions. One is, we talked about data. Um, I find there's a lot of data coming out now about entrepreneurship, but it's sometimes conflicting, and I was just wondering um, what, what you have seen of what is the truth. For example, I've seen data that says um, you should start a company of multiple founders, two or three. And I've also seen data that, that disputes that. I've seen data that um, supports sort of mentoring. And I've also seen data from actually from the Emory University um, data set that isn't a big fan of mentoring or doesn't see outcomes. And, and we talked about the network part quite a bit. And I was just wondering, um, how do you make that work given that it's kind of had mixed data, the mentoring, the uh, engagement. I think it's much more difficult than just putting a bunch of business people on the on your website. So, mm -hmm. okay. great. So, Peter, let's start with you. Will each of you try to pick and choose question the answers to questions that were posed? Sure. Uh, I'll, take, just, I'll take a stab at the last two, just quickly for Mike's question. Uh, you're right. The data is conflicting, and I think what's interesting in terms of what the work I do with Seed is, you know, we did mentoring a lot in the beginning, and we've kind of it's waned a little bit. We've moved a lot more towards peer learning. And I looked a lot at the Edward Lowe Foundation, which is out in the Midwest. They did some really good peer learning uh, that, uh, models that I looked at and then applied in Eastern Europe and North Africa. So it's a good source to look at in terms of how you get other experienced entrepreneurs to help other, other ones. There's, there's methodology around how to do that. Um, in terms of the, the, the second question around like what, who, how to do this better and what financing sources, it's not easy because oftentimes we're competitors in the same space. So it's great to work together, but it's hard to work together. What I have found well that works is segmentation. If I work with a startup group like an Impact Hub or somebody, they're actually producing clients that I would then work with. If I then work with a Deloitte or somebody else who's further up the chain with consulting mm -hmm. or even an Endeavor or somebody who might be further up, it's fine. You, you can find ways to, to, to segment the market a little bit. Um, and I think those are probably the two points I'd make on those questions. Okay. Okay, Shamur. I'll take um, Holly's question. You know, you're right that it is happening in an episodic way, and there is a big um, opportunity there. And I think that 
There are um, a couple of initiatives that I should probably mention. Um, one is Impact 2030, which is a group of companies that came together after the SDGs were announced. And the idea is employee engagement and um, looking at how larger companies can play a role in reaching the sustainable development goals. Um, and what they're doing is tracking where some of the needs are in communities uh, among entrepreneurs, but also among uh, skill development and, and workforce issues in, in terms of what companies can provide. Um, and um, basically tracking where those skills are within companies and then matching them uh, in communities. Um, and I think that some of this could be scaled up more. We are seeing the beginnings of that now. So I think that there could be more companies that could join. Uh, when I was at the chamber, we actually had conversations with Impact 2030 to get more companies to join. And I think it could be global, too. I think right now we have mostly U.S. companies that are part of this effort. So I think uh, some of the larger companies in emerging markets could play a big role here. And I think uh, with, in terms of um, the uh, online platforms that we're seeing emerge, um, we, there is an opportunity to share more information through cloud and other services to try to get uh, to spaces that are necessarily not close to you. You could be supporting somebody in another country, another community. Uh, so I think there is a lot of untapped opportunity there in terms of virtually connecting uh, employees that have the right skills with entrepreneurs that, that need those skills. Okay, Wesley. In regard to your question about opportunity zones, um, the one thing that's interesting is that most people don't even understand what the capital gain is, right? So then if you um, present this, this vehicle as something that can be transformative and the people that it's supposed to benefit don't even understand what it is, you have a disconnect. So something we're trying to do is um, provide a little transparency and understanding to the stakeholders in Richmond for them to understand what is this vehicle, what is, what is it supposed to do, how can the city and the other anchor institutions um, identify assets and communicate to investors what are projects that we would like to see funded here and have that participation versus, versus being at the legislative level and people, this is disconnect between that localities and the people it's supposed to touch. So that's something we're trying to, um, trying to do, and we're educating ourselves and then strategically thinking how do we communicate that. Because um, as you mentioned, uh, it's easily, a lot of times those projects could be displacement-oriented. So we're trying, to change, we're trying to address that ourselves. In regard to um, the silos, as Peter mentioned, regarding um, segmentation, I think that's super critical. We have a number of strategic partners from the Chamber of Commerce in Richmond to uh, the Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center that pretty much advises low-income entrepreneurs to Richmond Main Street Initiative, which is looking to revitalize the downtown area. And as we think about the programming that we have in this space, uh, we don't want to duplicate efforts. So let's be smart about what our strengths are and then come together and identify programs that, sorry, that truly can have an impact in regard to the people that come into this space. And then ultimately, in regard to the conflict on data, um, one thing I'm noticing that with a hyper-local approach, you really can, um, you, each area is different. So if you are touching a space and you are trying to figure out what the needs are, you have a greater chance of having, I would say, more impact. As an example, when people come into my space, I try to understand um, what are your needs and what do you do. And just recently, I had one member that um, comes into the space once a week. I know what they do, and then a few individuals came in and said, hey, I need these particular services, and I just made an introduction for them. And they have a conversation, and that conversation spurs more conversations. So that personal touch, I think, is critical in understanding your stakeholders to having the impacts that you want. Okay, great. <clears throat> Bill? Uh, so I'll talk two things. One is uh, network. Um, so there's a company just completed its Series A here in the U.S. called Hello Alice, formed by Elizabeth Gore. Um, it is trying to, for free, for underserved entrepreneurs, uh, minorities and women, 
not just in the US but globally, be that network. They monetize the data to companies like Microsoft and other technology providers and PwC and Deloitte who are trying to figure out also how to serve uh, uh, the great majority uh, uh, issue of, of lack of entrepreneurship and access to capital. But it is really good services and provides that network in a virtual free way. Um, on the question of data, we're at the beginning of thinking about how you optimize data. So the Emory University uh, data is about accelerators. Uh, there's a whole bunch of work we're doing on seed and series A. There's also work on accelerators that specialized accelerators based upon a specific vertical, like a food accelerator, uh, has much greater mentorship uh, benefits and scores than mentorship across a uh, generalist accelerator. So. The whole venture ecosystem is, is still in like the third inning of where it needs to go. I'll answer first the opportunity zone question. I think the reason uh, there was a lot of real estate investment that rushed in is because the way the regulations were written, it was very easy to interpret for real estate. It was very cut, cut and dry. When it came to investing in businesses in opportunity zones, it was not until I think last month when regulations were clarified to how you can actually use it to invest in small businesses. But I know that most real estate investors who have invested in opportunity zones are also looking for local small businesses as tenants for those, for those places, right? So they realize that they really need to have sustainable tenants, not just from the outside, to make those communities work. Um, there's, a, there's an investment fund called Blueprint Local, which actually just recently in Baltimore closed their fund. And they are going to redevelop the um, Amtrak station there. Um, so, and they want to specifically retenant it with local businesses and have it part of a community. So it's, it's kind of an interesting, um, I think I have more hope for it than uh, there's a lot of criticism about Opportunity Zones, but I think there's a lot of hope, especially now that it's clear you can actually use it to invest in businesses. Um, on the second question of data, it's a really interesting one because I've been doing a lot of research on uh, small businesses in the U.S. And, and, for example, there's lots of data and lots of arguments over whether small businesses create jobs or not. Uh, and what I noticed is it depends how you slice it, right? Because it depends on what time period you're looking at, what sector, what geography. Um, is there a recession going on? I mean, small businesses maybe perform better or worse in time of a recession as opposed to large corporations. I mean, there are a lot of factors. It's never as cut and dry. And people tend to slice data in a way to support their research. So it's kind of really difficult to figure out what's best. Honestly, that's, that's my, um, my take on it. Okay, I'm getting the, the cutoff sign. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to everybody's questions, but please join me in thanking the panelists.